The great difference between the real statesman and the pretender, wrote Edmund Burke, is that the one sees into the future while the other regards only the present. The one lives by the day and acts on expedience. The other acts on enduring principles for immortality. Close quote. This is the after-dinner scholar from Wyoming Catholic College, and I'm your host, Dr. Jim Tonkowicz. 18th century British thinker and member of parliament Edmund Burke is one of six statesmen highlighted by Dr. Daniel J. Mahoney in his new book, The Statesman as Thinker, Portraits of Greatness, Courage, and Moderation. Dr. Mahoney, who is a senior fellow at the Claremont Institute, a senior writer at Law and Liberty, and Professor Emeritus at Assumption College, lectured this past Friday at Wyoming Catholic College and was kind enough to record this interview about his new book. Dr. Mahoney, I once read a snarky comment that a statesman is nothing but a dead politician. Um, you obviously think differently. What is a statesman? You know, that, that's uh, one of those Socratic questions. You know, you remember there's a lot of platonic dialogues that are aporetic where a question is investigated and a, uh, a simple answer is never given. Well, I think we can, uh, I think the, uh, the distinction between the statesman, the, the mere or ordinary politician and the tyrant is absolutely essential to political understanding and human self-understanding. And by the way, the vast majority of politicians leave us or pass from the scene or die without being elevated to the rank of statesman. It is, there is occasionally a case where there is a, a political leader of some judgment and acumen and courage whose virtues are posthumously recognized. But... Um, um, I think a, a statesman is somebody who embodies a clear understanding of the political task before him, who is imbued not simply by self-interest or raw ambition, although I think nothing good in the political world occurs without honorable ambition. But I would say that the statesman is not simply a slave of public opinion. He is able to judge things from a horizon that includes the common good, not, not in some abstract or a priori way, but who's somebody who is animated by love of country and love of justice and by a desire to be esteemed uh, uh, because he's worthy of being esteemed, you know? And I still think that the best framework for understanding the fundamental features or characteristic of the statesman are what the tradition calls the cardinal virtues, courage, moderation, justice, and especially prudence, which Edmund Burke, who was a great statesman, the Anglo-Irish British parliamentarian and political philosopher, he called prudence the god of this lower world. And uh, we have to be very careful. Prudence does not, in the, the classical and medieval understanding, or the, under, the way in which Burke was using the term, prudence doesn't mean cunning. It doesn't mean uh, being careful. It, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a high prudence is a virtue. It, it involves an element of foresight, 
but it also involves a, a kind of practical wisdom or practical reason that I think depends on some intellectual understanding of the human soul, the common good, uh, the, the human condition, but is uh, practical men are not going to be metaphysicians, as Burke often stressed, but prudence, as Aristotle articulates, is sort of a virtue with the intersection of the moral virtues and the intellectual virtues. One of the things I argue in the statesman as thinker is there are some rare individuals. I've mentioned Burke. I think Lincoln fits into this category, Winston Churchill, Cicero in the ancient world, who really bring together deep thoughtfulness about politics and human nature. You know, in other words, a kind of philosophical attentiveness to the truth of things with this practical reason, with this ability to make one's way in the world, to make decisions in a way that are informed by judgment in a very substantial sense. Uh, and just to give an obvious example, we all know an ordinary politician when we see one, somebody who may even be decent, may even be public-spirited, but that doesn't rise to the heights. I think we know what a tyrant is, somebody who's rapacious and grasping, who puts his own interest above uh, the interests of the political community as a whole. And there are also what I would call ideological tyrants who enslave people in the name of some effort to, at social engineering or utopian efforts to improve the world. The 20th century was strewn by such men. So I'm not giving you a simple answer, but uh, I think the statesman is, um, it's, the statesman is a rare phenomenon, but it's the phenomena by which we ought to judge all other manifestations of political leadership. In other words, we have to understand the low in light of the high and not the other way around. Mm -hmm. If we reduce everything to the lowest common denominator, we'll understand nothing. Must a statesman be a thinker? I mean, the ones you cite in your book uh, have, well, have written books in many cases. Yeah. Um, my book is, it's a very comprehensive book, but I cannot say it's a comprehensive account of statesmanship because it looks at the what I would call the creme de la creme. You know, it looks at the those statesmen who were also thinkers. Um, I look at figures who combine greatness of soul with moderation, magnanimity and moderation, who worth who display honorable ambition at its heights. That doesn't mean I'm, uh, this is hagiography. These are human beings. Who, who exist in the rough and tumble of real life and political life. So do saints, but they're a different category. Uh, but the, the, those who are all also think, think seriously, as I said before, about human nature, the human condition, politics, history, are, you know, it's a very rare group of people. But in this case, every figure I examine the, in the book, Cicero, Burke, Lincoln, Churchill, de Gaulle, and the anti-communist uh, writer and statesman, Václav Havel. They were serious men of action and serious men of thought. Churchill says in his uh, very delightful autobiography of his early years, My Early Life, a man must nail himself to the cross of either thought or action. I have decided to look at a series of people who nailed themselves to the crosses of both thought and action. 
And I think real statesmanship certainly certainly involves a, uh, an element of real thoughtfulness. Does it does it demand writing books or you know trying to be a you know a kind of political philosopher as well as statesman? Probably not. But in these cases, in the case of these six exemplars, they managed to bring together. I, I think two of them, Cicero and Burke, could interchangeably be called statesmen and philosophers, and that's a very rare human type. Now, your book also addresses gratitude. How does gratitude play into the statesman? Well, I would say that so much of modern politics, especially of an ideological type, is marked by ingratitude, by fiat, by willfulness, by some you know, metaphysically mad, that's actually a term of Edmund's, Edmund Burke's talking about the French revolutionaries, but this sort of mad effort to remake the world at will and to see that God's creation or the natural order of things is somehow so inadequate that we need to create a new reality, a substitute reality. We saw that with Jacobitism, with communism, with national socialism, and uh, they were all efforts in a way to reject the world as it's given to us and to adopt an attitude of repudiation, to repudiate or negate our civilized inheritance, but even, you might say, the, the natural order of things, the way the world is constituted. And I think to be a true statesman, you have to have an attitude of appreciation and gratitude. You need to respect limits that cannot be changed and ought not to be changed, at the same time, one works to improve and reform. One of uh, my, the, one of Edmund Burke's, I keep on coming back to Burke, he's eminently quotable, but Burke insisted in the Reflections on the Revolution of France, a book published in late 1790, that conservation is a precondition for reformation. If you try to get rid of everything, if you reject your whole civilized inheritance, you're not going to reform anything. You're simply going to destroy. We have a term for that. It's called nihilism. Nihilism, both moral and political. Uh, and so, uh, yes, gratitude is a spiritual stance that has, I think, very decisively important uh, polit political ramifications because to be grateful for the givenness of things is already to adopt a stance toward the human world that is the opposite of contentious. It's the, it, it, I think gratitude breeds civic friendship while repudiation uh, you know, can lead to you know, revolution or civil war wars or these insane dreams to these you know, ideological projects of social engineering that I referred to. Now, in an era that wants to divorce religion from politics, you argue that religion is required for a statesman. Uh, can we have magnanimous men and women without some sort of metaphysical grounding? Well, everything has a metaphysical grounding. Now, I tend to agree with Burke that acting statesmen, even of the most reflective kind, are not going to be metaphysicians. But one has to give some thought to the nature of things. And the stance of gratitude rather than rejection, negation, repudiation that I just referred to, 
that implies a kind of metaphysics, a metaphysics that assumes that there is an order of things within which serious human thought, assertion, action uh, occurs. But I will say this, uh, it's, it, Churchill, for example, once said that, you know, a statesman cannot take his bearings by the Sermon on the Mount. Now, if one takes the Sermon on the Mount as a practical political program, involving absolute non-resistance to evil. You wouldn't be able to arrest criminals or defend the country and that kind of thing. I don't think that's a, as St. Augustine points out in his commentary on the Beatitudes, I don't think, I don't think the Sermon on the Mount is, but it's really a, a call to radical discipleship and has a almost eschatological dimension, an anticipation of what Christ called the kingdom. But um, I think this, the, great, the greatest statesmen in the modern period, at least, were all men who, they may not have been always orthodox in their religiosity. Lincoln is a good example of that. But Lincoln never sees reflecting on the relationship, for example, between human providence and free will. And how could he not, you know, in the midst of the Civil War, the immense suffering, the loss of, of lives in the in the struggle that he thought was worth fighting to, to uh, preserve union and liberty and eventually to put an end to chattel slavery. But, you know, how much were events in our control? How much was this the, the justice of God, you know, as he, as he suggested his second inaugural address, one of the greatest uh, speeches given by any statesman at any time in any country. So, and I'm struck... Uh, um, you know, probably Burke and de Gaulle, who I treat, they were what the French call croyons. Uh, Burke was a serious Anglican Christian. De Gaulle was a, a Catholic who went to ma mass every day in World War II. Churchill was probably closer to Unitarianism in his religious views, but um, when asked what, what the World War II was about, he said it was a battle between Nazi barbarism and Christian civilization. You know? I think... It's very hard for me to imagine this model, this, these exemplars of greatness of soul informed by public spiritedness, self-restraint, love of country, without some kind of religious appreciation of obligation or duty. Uh, that doesn't mean one has to be an orthodox uh, believer in biblical religion. Uh, would be nice, but, <laughs> but uh, it's not a requirement. But I, you might say an openness to the truce of religion, I think, is a requirement. Now, having reflected on statesmanship and great statesmen of the past, how do you feel about the future? Um, the need is obviously great. Uh, how can we form statesmen and stateswomen? Well, you know, these things don't hatch by themselves. They're not self-generating. My last word in the book is that we need to repudiate repudiation. That uh, Roger Scruton, the, the late English philosopher and man of letters, had a wonderful phrase that I often recur to, the culture of repudiation. So much of higher education, so much of intellectual life, so much of popular culture, uh, so much of this new woke secular religion is built on the idea that we have to repudiate our civilizational inheritance, start anew. You know, the French Revolutionary, 1792 was the year zero. Robespierre was killed, uh, the head of the Committee on Public Safety, the architect of the French Revolutionary Terror, was killed on the 9th of Thermidor in the year two. They started over 
We didn't do that in America. We're not living in the year 232 in some revolutionary calendar. But many people today do proceed as if the wisdom of the past is simply racism, sexism, homophobia, you know, a justification for patriarchy, all this sort of these buzzwords that you're not going to hear much at Wyoming Catholic College, but you're going to hear at a lot of elite institutions. So we need to recover liberal education. We need to recover that sense of gratitude that I think comes from deep reflection on the human soul, the search for truth, an understanding of the political or civic common good, and really renewing, I think, in the American civic context, an appreciation of the legacy of the American founders. Uh, that's a tall order, and so much today is militating against that. But I would say um, it, things don't look good, but um, uh, look, we, we human beings have to act, and we have to hope. I, I'm always reminded that St. Thomas Aquinas in his treatise on natural law tells us that human freedom is a part of God's providence, our prudence, our free will. So God's not going to save us unless we collaborate, unless we use our arts of intelligence to say what needs to be saved. And um, I think there, if we had more time, I could talk about various initiatives with classical schools, with charter schools. Hillsdale College is doing some great stuff with civic education. Most of this is happening in what I call the parallel polis, alternative institutions like Wyoming Catholic College. They're very, very important because they keep a living tradition vibrant. We want to preserve all this, not simply because it's our tradition, but because it's wise and true. Uh, I would also say this, um, to quote the Latin poet Horace, you can throw nature out the window, but it comes back through the back door. So we can try to you know, negate our civilization, get rid of human nature, succumb to various utopias. All it will do is immense damage to human souls and political communities. So in the end, the great work of restoration lies before us. It's very difficult, but we have no choice to make every effort to pursue that end. If you'd like to hear Dr. Mahoney's lecture to the Wyoming Catholic College community, you can find it in its entirety at our website, wyomingcatholic.edu. The 18th century poet Alexander Pope wrote this about his contemporary, Joseph Addison, who had served as Undersecretary of State and a member of the British Parliament. Statesman, yet friend of truth, of soul sincere, in action faithful, in honor clear, who broke no promise, served no private end, who gained no title, and who lost no friend, ennobled by himself, by all approved, and praised, envied by the muse he loved. May his tribe increase, and may we see a new generation of statesmen and stateswomen ready to take up the challenges of our day. From Wyoming Catholic College, this is Dr. Jim Tonkowicz.